Another one of our sponsors I'm excited to tell you about is actually another podcast. It's called People of Product. And it's really about kind of highlighting the way people come together in innovative ways and create all the digital products that seem to be in every part of our lives. And what I think I like the most is that these guys are speaking from experience. You know, we had George Brooks on our show. And besides that, he's like a really genuine human being, just super knowledgeable at creating way more effective teams to get this kind of stuff done. And I really can't recommend it enough. You can find them anywhere that you get your podcasts and I recommend you checking out People of Product. So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called PillowCube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow. That's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Referral network, find others who sell to your ideal client in a non-competing industry and go become best friends with that person and trade books and find ways to supplement that. But I would also give the encouragement to believe in what you are doing. If you can truly ultimately in your heart, believe that you do make other people's lives better to tap into that, block your time, be purposeful with your time, play your hype music, do something you need to do to get you in the zone. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Mary Grothy. Mary, thanks for making time for this. Uh, yeah, I, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. You bet. So CEO of House of Revenue, tell us about what you do out there in Denver. It was a journey in the making for sure. I had a sales career with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company called Paychex. I started at 22 as a sales admin, worked my way up, got on the sales team by the time I was 24 ended up becoming the number one rep in my first month of selling and maintain that title. So it's pretty cool when you're 24 and you have that kind of success. They ask you to fly across the country, trade reps at managers. I loved the work and I left in 2011, took an equity position with one of my clients and got to have a title of VP of sales and marketing. I hadn't done that before. But I was brave. <laughs> I think I only shook my knees and cried <laughs> when people couldn't see me. But I figured it out. I helped build a team. We quadrupled that company's revenue in seven months. And I started my first consulting firm. I was 27. And I had a heart for entrepreneurs and startups. And I wanted to help them become profitable because I knew so many of them struggled to make their first dollar. So I was out on a mission for three years. I made some rookie mistakes, went back to the payroll company, three years, sold millions, grew up a little bit, gained some wisdom and said round two on starting a company. The name of the company was actually Sales BQ. We started, I had a heart as a former top salesperson for CEOs who were in that early stage, like past startup 
phase, but getting into their second stage of scale where they were acknowledging that they can't do the sales anymore and they need to grow a sales team. Well, that's expensive. They usually don't get it right on the first one, two, three, four, five tries. And my heart was to help them build high-performing sales teams out of the gate. But our vision shifted a year and a half into that work because it was 2019 and the buyer was so different. Sales orgs weren't successful because of high-performing salespeople. They were successful because as a part of a revenue ecosystem, they had high-performing marketing, sales, customer success, and a brilliant technology engine, also known as revenue operations with automation and alignment with the buyer's journey. So we doubled and we started to handle full service for our clients, marketing sales, customer success, RevOps, knew we couldn't survive with the name SalesBQ anymore, rebranded as House of Revenue. There's a lot more to that story, but we go on contract for six to 18 months. We give our second stage scaling companies between two and about 20 million a VP of revenue who oversees sales, customer success, a VP of marketing, a RevOps analyst. And we go in and we build the infrastructure, we develop or recruit new talent, and then we set them for scale. And we've had a great track record the last few years. I love it. You know, uh, we were talking about just a minute before the show about how we've tried to make some more room on the show, especially for up and coming female entrepreneurs. And I think one of the reasons that it was easy yes to bring you on is my, my love for salespeople. You know, I got my first <laughs> sales job when I was 15. 25 years ago. And I feel like I've just been a sales guy ever since, even, you know, as chairman of our real estate investment fund, I feel like I'm just still top sales guy. You know what I mean? Yes. And it's interesting. I think your message really goes along with a lot of just my own interest. You know, 10 years ago, I thought like, man, if I was better at marketing, I wouldn't have to sell so much. Oh, you know? amen. So I became like this closet marketing nerd, just <laughs> reading so many books and going to courses and conferences and stuff. Right. And you know, somebody we had on recently really helped me in that world. Are you familiar with Marcus Sheridan and They Ask You Answer? Do you know that no, book? No, It's so good. You, you'd love it. I'm writing it down. He, he, he basically was going out of business in 2008. He, they installed pools, fiberglass pools mm-hmm. in people's backyards in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he's like desperate to try anything and comes across like HubSpot and inbound marketing. And he starts writing a blog post about every question anybody's ever answered him on a sales call. And he turns his website into his number one salesperson. Yes. It's like the answers are not like salesy answers. They're like if he's trying to truthfully answer his mom or his sister, you know, like just really trying to give them as much real information to make a real decision instead of how can I get money, you know? That's how the buyers changed. And uh, he's like, he becomes the number one pool website in the world. I think he got like 650,000 unique visitors a month. Since that, since then, he started a pool manufacturing business, grew it and sold it and speaks all around the world. And like, every time I'm, I I feel like he should be paying me commissions for how many of his books I sell. (laughs) But every time I'm introducing his concept to somebody, I'm saying like, I'm quoting him where he goes around the world and says, hey, 15 years ago, your client, what percentage of the sale happened online before they talked to your people? Mm-hmm. People have all sorts of numbers, 10%, 50%, 20%. He's like, what is it now? And like across the world at all these conferences, it averages out to like 70 or 75% oh now. Oh my gosh. Right? Happens before they ever talk to one of our people. Yep. He says, how about 15 years from now? You think that number is going to go up or down, right? Yes. And and you think like, man, sales was everything for like 100 or 200 or 300 years. And when we can know anything at the tip of our fingertips, the way I grew up, like 
so we have a little bit of similarity. As a 24-year-old, I became a millionaire because of what my commissions were off my sales and I hit my goal of being a millionaire by 25. I proceeded to lose it all later. Okay, we're going to have a different <laughs> talk about speculating. I did that a couple of times. So that's why this third time I'm going to buy commercial real estate. But the world's different. It is, it is different than 15 years ago when I did that, you know, and sales enablement and all these kind of things. So I'm really, I feel like I'm like stealing your thunder here. I really want to know what some of the basics are for RevOps as you see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, aligning with the client experience. So I, I interjected in your story to say the buyer has changed. And if you're not answering their questions on a beautifully built website that's engaging and emotionally connecting with them and making the path to a yes or no decision super simple, then you're doing it wrong. And that's awesome that you know this guy have the, that he's out speaking. I will get the book. I'm reading this year. I'm not a big reader, but something changed in me. All of a sudden, I'm a reader this year. So I'm downing the information. So I'd be more than happy to read it. But when we get into revenue operations, there was a big shift about a year ago because the term that people were familiar with was sales operations. And so you get into the world of sales ops and sales enablement, there were very mixed uh, definitions on that. But then you throw in the term revenue operations, what the heck is that? Well, the way we've been answered, we've been answering it into the market to our clients is defining it as you, you know, the client experience, which is the experience from the very first touch point in marketing through the marketing funnel, sales funnel into new client implementation, onboarding, whatever you want to call that step and ongoing customer success. There should be a seamless operational workflow that supports the client experience. And that's not typically how it's been built in organizations. It's very clunky and silo focused. And so marketing has a funnel and an experience. Sales has a funnel and an experience. The world of implementation and onboarding or installing, you never know what you're going to get. And then there's ongoing support. And it just seems like the customer has to start over every single time they go through those different four departments with a company. When client experience became a big deal and aligning that, a big missed piece was getting the technology to talk to each other and having one workflow for that customer. Q revenue operations. It is the technology from first touch point through renewal or offboarding. And it's also the operational workflow. There are behaviors of people within those silos and departments that technology needs to align with behaviors. When you have a tech stack and you don't have user adoption internally, you've heard the saying, it's only as good out as what you put into it or how you use it. And so looking at like great RevOps people understand the behaviors of the people that are going to use the technology and the behaviors of the buyer or the client that's going to be interacting with that company. And if it's a technology sale or if it's a product or service and whatnot, aligning all of those together, you can do that through revenue operations. There are great technologies out there. We're a HubSpot agency partner and we, we love it. We work with second stage companies, two to 20 million. We work with some bigger ones, especially in CPG and consumer brands. We can get into the hundreds of millions, but in that space, HubSpot is a brilliant technology and it can solve for all of it between marketing, sales, <laughs> customer success. So that's revenue operations to us. When you think about both the biggest successes you've had and the biggest successes your clients have had, what are some similarities you've seen? Between that I've had with our firm and our clients? 
Yeah. One, we're all scaling CEOs and the successes, it took me a while. I'm still growing. I'm still maturing. I'm still learning. And I, I felt like I hit a peak early in my career, being a top sales performer at 24 years old, like you said, making your first million. And when you're doing that at a younger age than other people around you, there's an aspect to it. I just felt like there wasn't anything I couldn't do. And I played with this mentality in business that I can do things very quickly and I can produce and achieve great outcomes. The challenge is not everyone is wired that way. And the big lesson that I had to learn and the similarities between our company and how we serve our clients is we're both scaling entities. And so I felt like I was ahead of the plumber's pipes always leak. You've heard the saying. So let me break this down. The work we were doing for our clients to build infrastructure, we weren't doing ourselves. The work that we were doing with our clients to get them in the right mental mindset for scale and for growth and talent development and, and coaching them and helping them turn people. Because oftentimes the team that gets you to a certain point isn't the team that's going to take you to the next level. There's emotional, emotional attachment. Okay, we're doing that. I wasn't doing that. There's... <laughs> There are so many similarities between the two companies and it really, when the pandemic shutdown happened, that helped me because we lost 60% of our revenue, our business, and a lot of our clients lost a lot. It gave me an opportunity to just hit the reset button and pause and take a look at what was going on and say, we need to apply what we do for our clients internally. And when we started rebuilding our internal house and I guess eating our own dog food, is that the same? We built our own inbound marketing methodology. We went on to HubSpot. We, we followed the same processes and methodology for marketing and sales and infrastructure for ops and rev ops. All of a sudden we start flourishing and having those experiences. Our clients were having, I'm like, why did I not do this earlier? I was so focused on the clients, but it is so much fun to be a CEO of a scaling company, to get past the first million, two million, venture to three, four, five, then 10, 15, 20. It is such an exciting journey. The similarities, we had to get it right mentally first. There's usually the CEO is the one getting in the way of the scale, and they're the last one who wants to admit that, but sometimes they do, but that's number one. Number two is just having the right infrastructure in place. You can't scale chaos. And then number three would be having the right people. So you've got a pretty impressive track record with so many of your clients, you know, doubling their revenue in 10 months or less, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about those things that you talked about implementing, what does that look like? Can, can you talk, can we go a little more in depth on a couple of those things? Sure. Nothing can happen until we do an audit and a gap analysis and align on the path forward. Our team is so talented. I love them so much. They are in earlier stages of their careers than typical consultants, if you will. They are coming from manager, director, or early VP stage positions, which means they're still in that phase of rolling up their sleeves, doing the work, and they're brilliant because they're on the front line. They're not super removed. And like the last time they did that work was 20 years ago, but they're great. That's not a knock. There are amazing consultants and advisors out there. But it, what's different about our team is I am recruiting from the front lines and putting them back in the front lines of these second stage scale companies, which is why I think we are so successful because we're not advising and consulting from the outside. Like, here's your playbook. Now go make it happen. We, we feel more like staff augmentation because the, my team goes to work for that company for six to 18 months in order to build a revenue engine internally so it can scale because you have to build the infrastructure. You have to build the foundation first. <laughs> no, no point in scaling chaos or the wild west. With that, it's critical to start with our audit and our gap analysis. 
And what are things you're looking for there? Yeah, well, all facets of marketing, sales, customer success, and rev ops. So we're looking at the infrastructure pieces. We want to understand, let me just break down one as an example. So in marketing, we audit their presence. We audit their brand. We audit who their customer is, what their competition is doing. We look at how they're ranking. We look at how their website's performing. We look at all the channels and we want to see where they're getting the most performance. And we want to look at their reverse funnel. So their conversion rates, we can understand their client acquisition costs, but then break it down into the cost per channel and then where they have the best performance. We love bringing forth in our audit ideas in that gap is, is more of a gap analysis plus recommendations. So we can show them early on, Hey, this is where you're missing the mark. These are where we believe the greatest areas of opportunity are to increase a big area of opportunity is most corporations don't allow marketing to play a part in customer success. They put it as top of funnel and they forget how marketing can support sales and sales enablement and also how marketing can uh, delight, help delight customers and create those brand ambassadors and help with revenue expansion and retention, user adoption, penetration into a product suite. So in our marketing audit, it's not just like, oh, here's an SEO report. Here's how you currently rank. Like here's your Google analytics. <laughs> so one client who hired us, they paid, I don't know, 10 or 15 grand for a marketing audit. And they were super hesitant to work with us because of course we're charging them again for an audit. The output of that audit was a, a, a Google Analytics report, like a Google Data Studio. So they just showed the numbers, but it had nothing more than that. They weren't able to tell a story. There weren't recommendations attached to it. And so really our work is extremely in-depth just to show what the path forward needs to be. There's also, you want to get like super granular. There's a difference between demand gen, lead gen, and growth marketing. There's a time and place for each. ICPs, ideal client profiles and buyer personas, they change over time. So we have some companies that are like, well, we did that exercise. Well, when did you do it? Three years ago. Okay. Has the market not shifted? Is your buyer not potentially using your product or service to solve a different problem? Or I was meeting with a company yesterday, a whole new role has been created in their industry because of the pandemic and because of COVID, there's a new, I don't know, chief innovation officers that's emerging in their industry that they serve. Well, that's not even a buyer persona that's listed. There's no messaging on their website. They have nothing for pillar pages or content or ways to attract that buyer. Or like you said, with your pool story of what problems do you solve and describe the day in the life and not in a marketing language but in real FAQ, like how do you help this person? And so, so much of that has been missed. So that's one example of what we do for marketing. And of course, if you wanted to dig in, I can tell you more about the rest of the revenue departments, but it's pretty similar through the rest. Well, I, I, I think it would be interesting. I think that maybe like before we do that, and, and I have a few different thoughts, but when you think about, let's maybe go back a little bit. When you think about your time at Paychex, what do you think you were doing different that other people aren't doing? I mean, they're like a 36 or $32 billion company these days, right? And, and where you rise to the top there, what were you doing that other folks weren't? Yeah, well, I'd like to say that I cared, but it came out of fear. And I showed up differently than my peers because I was so scared to be a salesperson. And I can explain that. I grew up in an environment that wasn't great. I had an alcoholic mother. My family had a lot of abuse, but I grew up in an environment where nothing I did was right. Everything I did was wrong. I wasn't loved. I was never set up for success. And I had so much fear of disappointing because when you disappointed a parent in that environment, the, the outcome wasn't good. And so when I went into sales, 
I truly had so much fear inside of me of saying the wrong thing, making somebody feel like I wasn't bringing value to them, that I was disappointing them. I didn't do it right. And I would have pure sweating before I made phone calls and the way that I got over that. So I had fearless, fearless team members that couldn't have cared less about, they're like, whatever, I'll just make another dial if I botched that phone call or if they hung up on me. And I'm like, that can't happen. You know, I'll never get over it. And so here they are like just quantity, boom, pounding the phones. Then there's me who said, no, 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 no. I'm going for like 100% (laughs) success rate. And so I implemented what became the mid-market playbook which was profiling before prospecting. It was right when LinkedIn had come out also in 2008 uh, per your earlier story. And I started to research people. I would look at their companies and the way that I had a sense about me at a young age about how our product and service was used by our clients is because my cold calling fear was so bad. My manager gave me the advice to call 10 of our clients and to understand how they used the product and service and how it made their life better and give me some specific examples. Those became the talking points that I needed. After I made those initial calls, I said, who wouldn't want our product or service? This thing is great. And so then I had the confidence to call and then I would research the companies before I picked up the phone. So I made way fewer dials than my peers, but I was very purposeful and and pure and honest and genuine in the outreach and wanting to connect emotionally with the prospects. But I was emotionally invested in serving them from the first point because I was so fearful of ever coming across salesy or like... (laughs) I don't know, interrupting them, or I just never wanted to get hung up on. Anyway, that's what propelled it. And then what started to happen is my integrity and my, I just had this like guilty conscious, I can't do wrong by anyone. And I felt that if somebody gave me the time of day, this rule of reciprocity, like if they're going to seriously engage in this process with me, I am going to do so right by them. But what I didn't know, because I was just a young salesperson, is that the integrity, the conviction, the passion, the enthusiasm, and the commitment to truly genuinely making that person's life so much better was the key. I earned trust like my peers and competitors didn't. And people just knew that it was genuine and coming from a great place. My close rate was super high. My activity wasn't so high, but the numbers, I still ended up winning. My sales managers for years had me fake my activity reports because corporate would never understand (laughs) why I was always missing on activity numbers, but yet why I was selling four or 500% of my quota. Anywho, they ended up listening to that. I did get to train and mentor and eventually build that new mid-market playbook. It was such a cool experience to be able to bring this type of selling into an atmosphere where really it was just like, I don't know, like boiler room stuff, pounding the phones. You know, it's interesting. I think about my sales career. I, you know, so I took the like very prestigious route to becoming an investment banking employee, right? Mm-hmm. I'm an art school dropout. <laughs> okay. so, so I spent my early years in sales because none of the other jobs that I could get would, would pay enough. Right. Mm-mm. And so I was like, Oh, I don't want to be a salesman. You know, it's like, I mean, being a salesman is prestigious, like kind of like being a garbage man, you know, like like the way people, right. So I was like, I was ashamed of being a salesperson. I didn't want to be a salesperson. I spent so long. And then eventually I figured out like, oh man, if you're good at this, this pays a lot. And I finally embraced it. Right. But, 
But I think about my early years, like 21, 22, these kind of things, right? And like, I worked for a sales training company, a guy who wrote the best-selling book on cold calling called Cold Calling Techniques That Really Re Really Work by Steve Schiffman. <laughs> but what's funny is it actually had like really helpful stuff about how to get through gatekeepers and how to not let people disqualify you before they've listened to you and stuff. Whatever. But I, I consider it kind of like verbal judo, you know, like, you know, like, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I really hate the idea of like sell or be sold. Like I'm going to win or, I, or you're, you know, you're going to win and not buy, or I'm going to win and get you to buy this like competitive thing. Right. Yes. And what's funny is I made more than all my friends made with that type of more verbal judo, mm -hmm. you know, word games type of sale. And then later I, I like was able to transition to that, like trusted advisor type yes. of sale. Like I'm a huge fan of this group called the Arbinger Institute. And then I ended up going to work for them later and stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's funny, like I wasn't frantic anymore. And I was like absurdly patient playing the long game. Mm. And, and it's funny, as you say it, my activity was so down. Like that, that sales training company, I quit, went and did sales for Black & Decker in Orange County, California. Then my old boss called me and said, hey, do you want to start a company with me? We'll sell leads back to our old boss. <laughs> and I had to, I upped my activity by 50%. I would get up at 5 a.m., make 100 calls to the East Coast by 3 p.m., then make another 50 calls by 5 p.m. West Coast for ourselves so I could get my three appointments a day because I knew my numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And what's funny is like later on in life, when I was closing like literally millions of dollars in sales, I was like going to lunch, hanging out, sending people a book, talking to them about their like their like argument with their spouse, you know, and like, yeah. but like, I don't know. I should have thought this through more before I started the story, but I just really identify with what you're saying because I went from making six figure income to more than 10 times in it with that more, what I call a trusted advisor sale. Yeah, it was everything. And I didn't even know what I was doing. And that's, I'm so thankful for the path and the approach. I, I also started selling in 2008 and that wasn't the start of a great season for a lot of people that were in the profession. And a lot of my peers who had been riding the wave on a good economy and you know the company I was selling for actually had some really great innovation in technology and in service. And so it was a very easy sale but when I went into the role and the economy and market started tanking, I just had never sold in any other environment. So I didn't know. So I got to learn in that environment and still had remarkable outcomes from it. So I know that that also helped shape what, what came after. Yeah. Well, for people who, for people who want to generate more of that skill set to be able to sell like you sold, what's, what's one tip of something they could practice repeatedly? Hmm. I would be curious of what their agenda is. I I have a sales rep right now who's trying to sell me on something. I won't say what, because if they listen to this, I don't want them to feel bad. The pursuit is uncomfortable on my end. And it makes me question, what is this person's agenda? Because it doesn't feel genuine and it doesn't feel like they have my best interest in mind. It feels like they're just chasing a quota and they're willing to do whatever it takes in the hustle and the grind. And people don't want to be sold to that way and treated that way. And so I would, I, I think I have two, two pieces of encouragement for the over hustler that is grinding and over persistent and 
your agenda or your focus might be on the money you're going to make and the recognition and crushing your quota, which is fine because we use that term. We've trademarked quota crusher. That's the name of our podcast of our sales podcast and our sales training room, but there's a way to crush your quota without being an aggressive jerk in the process. So I think that the salespeople who might be a little over aggressive and they need to just get in touch with the real passion behind the profession, which is you are doing something to better someone's life through selling a product or a service or a technology, widget, gadget, whatever. And if you can tap into actually serving the prospect, the buyer and making their life better because you're in it, you will do better in sales. There's, I believe, just the law of the land of being kind and generous and gracious towards people and genuinely loving your neighbor and trying to make their life better. And I think that sales is a phenomenal profession to do that. But I do feel like there's a lot of people out there that ruin the profession because they just don't have tact or class. And I don't like the way they go about it. The other piece of encouragement is for the people who really do have the heart, but they're so timid and they don't have that hustle and grind to do the work and get it done. My encouragement is to do one of two things. One, invest in inbound marketing and get more at-bats that come to you and remove the super hard part of sales, which is typically prospecting and getting enough conversations, build an inbound engine, build a referral network, find others who sell to your ideal client in a non-competing industry and go become best friends with that person and trade books and find ways to supplement that. But I would also give the encouragement to believe in what you are doing. If you can truly ultimately in your heart, believe that you do make other people's lives better to tap into that block your time be purposeful with your time, play your hype music, do something you need to do to get you in the zone, but be committed and disciplined to doing the work because without doing the work, you're just not going to get the outcome. So for those of you that are heart aligned and really on that mission to serve, but like, "Ah, I don't know if sales is for me, you just got to tap into that. We call it BQ, the behavioral quotient. You got to tap into the BQ component. And for those of you that are on the other end of the spectrum and you're blowing people up and you're connecting and pitching on LinkedIn, and you're not bringing forth any sort of class to the profession, I just really encourage you to shift. You know, what's interesting too. I think about, uh, and I think about like, you know, I had a super glamorous job. I did yellow pill, yellow page sales. Yeah. Right? And like, not even like the cool, like large ones. I was like the inline, <laughs> inline. Right. And the thing is, I didn't care about it at all. I, I was so stoked to have moved from Canada. Mm-hmm. I just got married and we're living in Huntington beach. I surf every morning before work. And like, I was punching the clock. This mm-hmm. is not what I was about. Right. And I, as you say that, I think like, I think about the times when I was able to treat my sales, like it was part of my profession, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a job. It was a job, but it wasn't when I, when I was bringing like a career mindset instead of a punch the clock job mindset, it helped me do a lot of those things that that you're describing. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Well, that (laughs) I got to work for that payroll company twice. One in my 20s and one in my 30s. (laughs) I was two completely different people and I still had success. But I'll tell you, I had a lot more joy and I had a lot more sleep and I had a lot more free time the second time I did it. The first time was all, it seemed like you. It was all about the hustle, the grind. They poured everything in to get it done. I mean, it was just relentless in that. And 
the second time around wasn't that way. It was more career driven. I had a lot more purpose and a lot more connection in what I was doing. And the joy that ensued was completely different. I was also a lot nicer to people and wasn't as, I was still competitive, but not like in a mean way (laughs) of steamrolling people just to absolutely fight to be number one. But there's something, um, I'm an openly faith-based CEO and I became a Christian when I was 29. So that was also a really big difference between the first stint and the second stint. I look at being aligned with my God-given talents. And when you can align with your true purpose of what you were put on this planet to do, it's never punching the clock. It's never a, a job. This, this right now, the work I get to do right now is mind blowing that I get to do this and lead the team that I get to lead and scale the companies we get to scale. And there's so much more in that work that I'm passionate about and mentoring and developing my people. And anyway, there's a lot more on that. But for me, it is all about aligning with your passions, your talents, and really setting out to do what you were put on this planet to do. And I think that those are the two biggest differences. I used to cry. Like I was so successful selling payroll and I would cry because I felt so empty. And I'm like, this isn't why I was created. Like I wasn't created to sell payroll. There has to be something so much more for me, but it was the journey that I needed to go through in order to be where I am today. And I'm young, I'm 37. I still have a lot left and I have no idea where I'm going to go or what path is in front of me, but definitely like, it's just the maturation on the journey. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm a I'm a faith guy myself, and what's funny is I I feel like in the later years I've been learning more from other faiths. You know, and I think about like one lesson from Buddhism that's interesting mm-hmm. for me is this idea that it's kind of like that work can be a gift to others. You know, I think growing up in a in a you know Christian background, I, I really like believe so many of, of those teachings are so helpful to like being a good human helping others, mm-hmm. having a satisfying life. They're just like good, like whether you believe or not, they're actually just like good principles, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But but it's been interesting for me to learn from other faiths, like this idea that like, I think I was like a hedonistic snowboarder, like, you know, work was for if you couldn't, fi- like work was only if you had to, otherwise mm-hmm. I should be out snowboarding, right? <sighs> and this idea of like that work could be a way to love others and serve yeah. others was not something I'd really thought of. And, you know, you think about this opportunity, like, have you heard of this guy, Bob Chapman? He wrote a book called Everybody Matters. Mm-mm. So I think he's fantastic. He he basically was like hiring and firing people all the time in his company. And then he decided like, man, I got to care about people. And so he's like, our company is going to measure itself by how we impact the lives of our employees, right? And he's grown from 2 million to 2 billion in revenue. They've bought over hundred companies and they use like lean operational excellence to turn them around. Mm -hmm. But instead of like, how do we eliminate waste? It's how do we eliminate our employees frustration? And like, they've got all these great stories about people putting their marriages back together and all this, like, like the positive impact he's had on the world in the life of his employees, not just his customers is like really inspirational to me. Okay. This is everything to me because I had a conversation. I didn't, I've never heard of this guy. I've never heard of this book. I had a conversation this morning with an executive director of a nonprofit and it's also a faith-based organization. And the executive director asked me a question about when like, I'm going to take that time to really tap into what my gifts are and like how I'm going to go and serve the world. And I got triggered. I'm a passionate person. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. I got triggered and I probably responded with a little more passion than I needed to. But my response was, I have never been clearer 
on what my purpose is in this world. And God put me purposefully in the marketplace. And I am now entering into this new chapter as what I feel is a spiritual mother, which is super weird because I'm only 37 and my kids four. So that's weird because I have a lot of younger employees, but regardless of age, my heart shifted when the pandemic shutdown happened and I surrendered and was like, God, just take this company away from me because we were bleeding. I mean, we were losing every client left and right. We lost 60% revenue in three days. I didn't know when the bleeding was going to stop. And it was at that moment that I realized that I was still on this path by myself, like proclaiming to be a Christian, but I was still on this path using my talents for really furthering my own success and recognition. And God just has a way, like when he's ready to interject and he knows that you're ready to listen, like he's going to show up and he showed up for me. And I realized in that moment that I was willing to just surrender, give the company away. And I could audibly clearly hear him say, no, I am where I'm meant to be, but it's time to do it together. And that was also something that prompted the rebrand of our company from sales BQ to house of revenue. My pastor at the time did a sermon called unshakable. And it was about Matthew and building the house on the rock and not on the sand. And so the scripture reads that he who builds his house on the rock, it can weather any storm, but the fool who builds the house on the sand, it's going to crumble. And I felt in that moment, I felt so convicted. And I, I was just on my knees, surrender, praying, like it's crumbling down. I didn't build this on the rock. I didn't do it right. And I could hear like, it's not all bad, but it is time to rebuild. And as we started to rebuild the company, I just kept questioning, is this where I'm meant to be? Is this where I'm supposed to be? And I had it affirmed multiple times that it is okay to serve and be a Christian and further his kingdom in the marketplace. That is a thing. And it's, it's, it's a awesome that you brought it up, but it's also in the Bible as well. And to be able to do work, I can still be the light. And I made a commitment to my team and I started showing up as a completely different CEO. I had a friend and the examples before me bundled it up and threw it out. And I said, I'm going to do this different. And I don't care if I've never seen it modeled for me before I'm tapped into the source. I'm connected and I know it's right. And I started committing to loving my team, like legitimately loving my employees. And it sounds super weird. And it probably is an HR issue. I don't know, but it's right. And well, listen, I, I don't, I don't think it's an HR issue if we are not imposing our faith on others. You know, it was interesting. I think it was the head of diversity and inclusion for Salesforce. We're speaking at a big tech conference out here. Yep. And talking about, you know, the the pendulum has, has swung so bad, so much the other way that people of faith feel like they need to pretend that they aren't who they are at work and mm. stuff like this. And so some of these larger tech companies in Silicon Valley are starting to have like groups for employees of faith across faiths to kind of like feel some camaraderie and not feel alone at work kind wow. of thing. I, I definitely think it gets out of control when people say, I believe this. So you need to believe what I believe, right? Yeah. Rather than letting people get their own answers. But this idea of like not being who you really are is not helpful either. You know, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, as you were saying, I was thinking, this idea of like helping people bring really solid, true principles, which is like, if you get, <laughs> if you take care of your customer from start to finish, you've got one, I'm, this is gonna, might be a leap for some people, but this idea of like taking care, like thinking about these humans as a human, instead of yes. as a prospect, instead of as a number, instead of as a quota, right? And like everything about their experience with us 
feeling like what we would want it to feel like, like shocker, like mm -hmm. here's straight one from the Bible, treat people the way you wish they would treat you. Right. Which is very different than treat people the way they treat you. <laughs> okay. But, but my point is like, if you think about this, like how much like humility to actually listen to our clients, how much mm -hmm. humility for CEOs to actually listen to our frontline staff who are working with our clients and then like willingness for us to do the painful part to make things simple and easy yeah. for our clients. Like that would, you like this whole, like you're going to, you're going to harvest what you plant. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Oh, like yeah. deep care about others. There, there's this guy, I don't think he's a faith guy, but Derek Sivers, he built the first online music store called CD baby. Okay. He's got some great Ted talks and stuff. <laughs> But he says, if you want to know if you're in a good business, you don't really, like he says, business isn't about money. He says money is a natural byproduct of service. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know if what you're doing is of enough service, there's a really easy way to tell. It's if people will pay you for it. Wow. There you go. Like that might be a little counterintuitive or there's a bit of a circle there. Mm -hmm. But like if you are hyper-focused on being of service, money is a natural byproduct. Mm -hmm. And yet how many times do I want to like sell what I want to sell, regardless of the feedback loop of whether people wanted to pay for that, you know, or things yes. like this, right? Yes. I, I completely agree. I, it, it gets into like value-based selling. The price is only an issue in the absence of value. And somebody asked me once at a conference after a Q&A session, and they said, give us one piece of advice. What's the one thing? And I said, sell something people want. And then you don't ever have a problem with sales. <laughs> but how often is that part missed? And price it in a way where their acknowledgement of the value they're receiving in return, it's a no-brainer. You know, you think about this idea of like, if we stopped pricing things for what they were worth, and we try to figure out how to have this be drastically unfair in the client's <laughs> direction. You know, there's so many times that we can do things for a client that actually don't cost us much extra money. You know, like I'm, I'm on your website right now. I just downloaded this. It's time to build your house of revenue, your, your guide. Yes. Okay? And everybody else should go do that too. But you think about like, you did this once and you can give it away how many times, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you have so many, uh, you know, I don't know your business, but I know that you have so many of the same problems with different clothes on in a different business, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Your ability to like, hey, here's what we're here to help with in person. And then here's all these extra guides that we can give you to study on the side. They could be actually worth as much as your time you spent there physically, right? But like, you think about like how many, how many extras, like if we think about delivering substantially more value than they paid for. Like, mm -hmm. isn't this like a natural word of mouth generator too, right? Mm -hmm. It is. We made a really tough decision to put our entire process and methodology out available for download. We asked for your email in exchange, but it's out there. And it's interesting because we've actually had a few executives reach out to us that admit, hey, we downloaded it. We love it. You know, we heard you on this or we found you through this channel found this guide. We downloaded your 12 month program template, all of your audit checklists. We did it all. We tried to implement it. We need your help. <laughs> we can't do it. We're not you, or we don't have the bandwidth, or I'm going to have to hire somebody to do this. We'd rather just hire your team since you know how to do it, but it is a give first. We, we know what we do. We also know that we know our ICP and when it's the right fit, people know we typically have a one to two call close. It's a very short sales cycle and people just understand you either get it or you don't. You've either tried and you failed and you've thrown a lot of money away, trying to address how to get past your revenue plateau or to enter into the second stage of scale. And yeah, the downloads are there. Like go download them. You've got the whole ebook, the 12 month outline, and then all of your audit checklist, but it's a give. A lot of people can probably take it and solve the problems all on their own. And why not? 
Why not? Why, why not let other entrepreneurs and CEOs flourish? Like there's no shame in that. We're going to be fine. Enough people will say yes to working with us. Yeah. You know, I do think about classic friction between sales and marketing teams mm. and then like, and then like customer service people getting treated like dirt afterwards. You know what I mean? And to me, like there's a great opportunity in rebranding it as a revenue team mm -hmm. because all these things you got preached to for 50 years about what marketers do may or may not be true on a revenue team. You know, what salespeople do may or may not be true on a sales team, you know, and like this chance to overcome like even unconscious biases at least feels like an advantage to me. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah. Oh my goodness. I level the playing field because everybody contributes. So going back in the story, I said, we set out to build these high performing sales teams. And I, I woke up one day, I'm like, well, it's 2019 and sorry, but you can't build a sales team of sales unicorns anymore. Like you used to in the past, the buyer has changed. The whole landscape of generating revenue has changed, but then you go into these organizations where marketing and customer success are on islands, independent of sales. And only sales is the one that has the marker for compensation and keeping their job based on hitting a mark. But because now when you're trying to create a very smooth and holistic experience for your client, marketing sales and customer success should absolutely be on level playing field. You have attraction, you have decision stage and closing, and then you have the client experience and all three are responsible. You're attracting revenue, you're closing the revenue and getting it committed. And then you're servicing the revenue to an extent that you can have retention and renewals and referrals. Well, <laughs> it's a beautiful cycle, but if you only have one department that's carrying the load and the weight to getting the close, you're completely missing the mark. So yes, 100% marketing sales and customer success should be a revenue team with their focuses. And as I said earlier, marketing should be not just top of funnel, but all the way through and delighting the customer in 360. Anywho, yes, complete alignment. You know, I'm interested in something very related to this. You talked about the difference between, you know, demand generation, demand capture and, and growth. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people's problems come by not separating those. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I'm interested in what some of your favorite approaches are for demand creation. Yeah. When you have to get the language right. And you can only do that by identifying who you want to be buying that product or service. So some brands have created so much demand for what they're doing because they have just figured out who their buyer is, how to communicate with them and how to connect on a, a psychological level to create this, like, I have to have that. I need to have it. It just taps in. So if you are trying to figure out like, how do you create that demand for something? Well, you can look at Apple. Apple's extremely innovative. They think of things before we even know that we need them. And then when it's launched, we're like, how did we ever live without this? Oh my gosh, I need this right now. So they create a huge demand for their items. Think about the way when you're scrolling through your Instagram feed as an example, you're able to get these ads targeted to you where you look at it. You're like, I have to have this right now. You get it. You're like, how did I live without this? I'm having this problem. I need it. I can't get enough of this and it needs to solve the problem. But the only way to do that type of marketing is to be able to be uh, connected emotionally and understanding the day in the life of your buyer and why they need this. And then creating the messaging that 
in a way it could be scarcity mindset. It could be FOMO. It could be ways to show so clearly that you can articulate that you understand their problem. And then you're showing how to get them to the solution and the gain that they're going to have as a result of it. But when you can tap into that emotional and subconscious state sometimes of the buyer, you're creating the demand for it. But there's also, I was listening to the founder of Basecamp. He was on Clubhouse yesterday and he's talking about Hey.com, which is an email platform. And there's so much innovation in it. And there's a, there's a demand in the market for email to be better and not for everyone to hate their email and to be bogged down by it. And anywho, the way that the marketing has been built for this company and the way that they understand the problem that they're solving, there's a demand for having a better experience with email and not hating it so much and always feeling behind and feeling the anxiety that comes as a result of having a full inbox. So there's ways to do it, but it's tapping in psychologically into who that buyer is. That is a way, and then you get attraction and people coming to that brand, you have very high conversion rates through the funnel when you can tap in it that way. By the way, everyone, it's H-E-Y.com, not H-A-Y.com because I just Googled it. <laughs> so can you run us through a scenario, whether it's a client, whether it's yourself, can you, can you give us a real world example of speaking that language? Yeah. Hmm. I'll use ours because it's the one I get to do the most. CEOs buy from us and we had to do a separation in our brand. So hopefully this example is very helpful for people. When we grew sales BQ, we attracted a lot of salespeople because of my background, because of some of the resources we put out on the website. So we maybe weren't as learned in SEO when we first started a lot of sales content, a lot of sales keywords, but we started attracting so many non-decision makers and all salespeople and sales managers who don't buy from us to the website. And our leads were plentiful and the conversion rate was terrible. And I knew that a CEO would land on our site and we're not speaking to them. We're not connecting with them. If I do a speaking engagement or do some sort of attraction method, like a podcast interview or any a great social post, and it attracts a CEO and they go to the website, they're not going to emotionally connect with the brand and say, well, this is me and I need this. And so there was a big miss in what we were doing. And we purposefully split SalesBQ into its own brand. We love our sales community. They live there. Everything that's on there is free. It's my give back to the community. All of our sales treaty is free. And then we have House of Revenue now separated. And everything that is written and produced and put together is built in a CEO's language. And you want to know the way that we come up with that wording? Well, we use a tool called Chorus that records our conversations. And we use the transcriptions and looking back and listening to what the executives are actually saying. And then we can capture snippets of that and we build those long tail key phrases into our copy on our website. So what we're attempting to do is get away from the marketing speak and actually take through these interviews and conversations with executives, whether it's pre-sales or post-sales. And then we take that language and embed it in our marketing, our messaging, our blogs, our content and whatnot to ensure that we're building it so that when we do drive traffic to the website, the goal, and, and it's getting better every day. I'm not saying we're perfect by any means, but as we refine it, the goal is to have the conversion and have it be a no-brainer that they connect. I want the CEOs to say, you get me. And I'm so glad I found you. Is this, uh, is this chorus.ai? Does that yes. sound like the right one? Okay. Oh, this mm -hmm. looks great. It's a uh, great tool. <laughs> it's interesting to think that through of like, 
you know, I think about a sales tool like my, you know, especially when I was landing really large accounts, hundreds of thousands or million, multi-million dollar accounts, right? And my absolute favorite thing was to buy people lunch mm. because A, there's like this reciprocity thing of like, I'm buying lunch and, you know, and take them somewhere they actually want to go. Right. Mm-hmm. But it like, because it was like culturally rude to talk business before the food gets there or something, <laughs> I got all this time to investigate and build rapport and find out who they are. Right. But also to like dance around the subject that we're there to talk about and ask these questions and find out their worldview. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this could easily be used manipulatively. I like to hope I was doing it in service of them. But Mm -hmm. when it got around to describing what, you know, how I thought we could help them with their problem, I would just literally intentionally use their actual phrases back to them. And they never like I never got called out on it. I don't think they realized it was happening. Right. No. But Framing our same solution, but using their words was was highly, highly effective. So the idea of putting that directly into your copy and like, you know, probably into videos, you know, mm-hmm. and stuff like that would, would also help, I'm guessing. Yeah. So that's part of NLP and it's masterful to actually use the exact words that they've already said. They typically don't pick up on it subconsciously. It feels very warm and connective and inviting, and it keeps that guard very low because it sounds and feels familiar, but they probably aren't picking up on that you're doing it. I've trained for years and I've said, if your prospect has to translate what you're saying into how it solves their problems or makes their lives better, you're doing it wrong. You have to do the translation for them. Don't ever ask a prospect to do the heavy lift to figure it out (laughs) what you're saying. And we're not perfect. So I still make that mistake. I got feedback just recently somebody had a comment on the proposal and it, it hurts. <laughs> I'm like, I've listened. I spend hours on these proposals after I know we have got more of a, a stronger verbal commit. I don't waste time on proposals otherwise, but I'm, I'm building this out. And I got the feedback the other day that I missed the mark. I'm like, Oh, that kills me because I have worked so hard over the years to ensure that I'm capturing their messaging, their language, their verbiage, and really regurgitating it into a way that they can feel warm and familiar and trusted. You, you said earlier in this conversation that being a trusted advisor in the sale, and that's exactly right. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot of subjects and I've got, I've only got maybe six or eight hours more questions for you, but <laughs> in the meantime, so, so let's talk about where are the best places for people to connect with you? Yeah. Go to LinkedIn, Mary Grothy, G-R-O-T-H-E. You can send me a message there. And I'd love for you to gain access to some of those resources on houseofrevenue.com. If anything really stood out for you today, then submit an inquiry. I get those. We're, we're, we're still small. We're in, we're like two and a half million. So I, I get to do all the business development, maybe in a year or so that may change, but it comes direct to me. So just submit it. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite questions to end with is what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? Mm, mm, mm. Attitudes are contagious. Is yours worth catching? I learned very young that negativity and being pessimistic or gossiping or talking poorly or being judgmental and just the attitude and and the way that you were showing up and exuding who you were and portraying who you were, that that was contagious and others around you can get pulled into that and it just breeds more. So you have an opportunity. It just goes into the whole say like, words break life or death. I mean, what do you want more of? And so it's that it's the attitude and really how you're showing up and how you're being it's contagious. So if you want more of the good, then you have to start with you and it will be contagious. 
You know, it's interesting. I think about that being maybe even more so true as the CEO or as the, the leader <laughs> of the organization, right? Completely. I think about like, I don't know, like I almost feel like by taking on the mantle of leadership, you you kind of lose a little bit of your rights to be in a bad mood. You do. And and like, you know, it's it's not my staff's problem that, you know, that's we're having a major situation with one of our investments or that you know, somebody wants to sue us or that, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. any, you know, it's not their problem, but by me not choosing my emotions, I'm making it partially yes. their problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And it just makes their day suck to have to be around me if I'm going to be like that, you know? Oh, completely, completely. Yeah. If I expect any behavior out of anyone on my team and the way that they show up, communicate, treat others, I will not have an expectation of someone doing something that I haven't modeled for them. And that is something that I believe is one of the top responsibilities of a CEO. You want greatness out of your people, then you have to be that and you have to model it for them because the tone that you set becomes the standard. Oh, you can't be one way and expect something different. I'm sorry. And I think it's the same way in parenting. Yeah. You know, I think, I I think today society has really been sold a lot of exaggerated victimhood. Like Mm -hmm. we're, we're constantly, you know, there's so many messages about how hard done by we are, you know, you can, you can, no matter what demographic, what background, what career, you know, like wherever you're at, there's some, there's some angle of who we are as a person that's being told we're, we're being hard done by, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there are real victims in life, Yes, but things do not get any better by exaggerating it. Do you know what I mean? No. And and yet how how inspirational are those people who who have things tougher than us mm-hmm. and then choose better attitudes than us? <laughs> you know, like how much do you want to be around that person, right? Oh, completely. And that's what you've seen people battle like cancer or you know, just a terrible situation and their attitude. You see somebody who has an amazing attitude through that and perseveres and doesn't fall into the woe is me. You can look at that person and easily want to say, what's my excuse? I don't have anything as bad as that person and they're persevering. And again, it just goes to attitudes are contagious as yours worth catching. And I agree with you that there's a way there's, there's a narrative that needs to be shifted. There's, there are beliefs that need to be shifted. I cut out media. I cut out noise. I cut out the woe is me. I've had to weed the garden in my life a few times and uh, say goodbye to relationships and friendships that aren't life-giving. And it's amazing once those are out, all of a sudden, like the clouds part, (laughs) the sun, oh, like moment comes out. It's amazing how joy-filled our lives can be, but if we're going to believe and and read that narrative and listen to that narrative and be surrounded by that, yeah, you can get... Suck down, pull down badly. Yeah. Well, I know you've got an ebook, but do you have a do you have a book book coming out? <laughs> yes. Have you heard of Jeffrey Gittimer? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. I was on his podcast about ten months ago, and he loves my story, and he's been working with me to write a book. It's my story, the path to becoming number one in a sales rep. I. We had it to the point where he took it to his publishers. We received some initial feedback and I I pulled back because I, if you maybe don't know, but I'm not one to do what others say. I'm one to trust my own intuition. And I didn't like the initial feedback, which I know a lot of authors don't. It's personal, especially when you're telling a lot of your early story, but I'm making a decision 
I've just felt like I need to shift and tell a slightly different story. I don't think my story stops at being number one sales rep. I think there's some motivational pieces in that, but I wasn't put on this planet to have influence to teach people to be number one. I've learned some greater lessons in life. And I think that those need to be shared in this story. So I'm making the decision to go back to the book, augment the book, shift the narrative slightly. I think it can be a lot more life-giving than it is right now, rather than just be like, how to be a great salesperson. Let's just talk about how to be a great human being and (laughs) do something remarkable on this planet and make a lot of other people's lives better, even if your talent and the path that you're on is in the sales profession. So shift in the story. I'm still working on it. You'll be the first to know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, come back on. Once it comes out, we should just have you back on the show to come talk about it. Thank you. Well, this has been great for me. Hopefully somebody listening liked it too, but I liked it. Hey, I agree with that. Hopefully somebody did. Well, thanks for doing this and and plan on coming back on the show when, when your book comes out. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Bye everyone.